greater sense of appreciation for what what God was doing here in Canada and how Dr. Dallimore, I think, is really a a precursor to what we're doing here. And and if he were alive today, and Mark Hudson, you know, I I think you knew Dr. Dallimore, he, he would be thrilled to be standing here to see all these young people just craving after good theology and the gospel. And so... Uh, I think that the work that he did uh, really was a spur to these to, to, to a day like today. So anyway, let's just, we'll dig in, and I'll if things come to mind, I'll riff off of it. If you have questions or anything like that, please feel free. Or if you knew him, like Mark, and you have an anecdote you want to share, uh, that would be great too. But let's just, uh, let's go. Well, Arnold Dallimore was born in London, Ontario, on September 6th, 1911. With Canada's later entrance into the First World War and the economic hardships of the Depression, his birth came at a very difficult time for Canadians. I always kind of chuckle to myself with this line here. Uh, Poverty descended on Canada like an ice age, and this had great effect on the Dalimore family. I actually stole that line from George Orwell. I, I try to always put Orwell quotes, unattributed Orwell quotes into my essays or anything that I write because I love Orwell. So anyway, I always see that and think that's kind of cheesy. But anyway, um, I hope that uh, uh, his publisher didn't hear that. Um, <clears throat> while times were tumultuous in Canadian public life, the church also suffered. So this is the age of the great uh, so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy that swept across North America, and uh, Canada wasn't immune to this. So, I mean, basically, you had seminaries splitting, denominations splitting. Uh, the, the denomination I'm part of, the fellowship, comes as a result of the split in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. I went to Toronto Baptist Seminary. That was a that was birthed in 1927 out of the splits from the from this controversy. So this was huge. Uh, and on the fundamentalist side in Canada, it was led by a guy named T.T. T. Shields, uh, who was the pastor of Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto. So you go downtown Toronto, you want to, you you might go uh, along Jarvis and Gerard, come to the corner and and see this what you would immediately think was probably a Catholic church, uh, only to discover no, actually that's a Baptist church with this huge spire and it's a kind of like a neo Gothic style architecture. Uh, and T.T. Shields was the pastor of this, was the most important church in Toronto and arguably one of the most important churches in Canada at this time. Uh, Arnold Dallimore was 17 when a divide happened amongst Ontario Baptists uh, that took place over the teachings of a man named L.H. Marshall, who taught at McMaster University in Toronto. So you're thinking, wait a second, he just said that McMaster was in Toronto, but I know it's in Hamilton. Uh, Back in those days, uh, McMaster actually was in Toronto. It met at what is now the Royal Conservatory of Music. So if you go down behind U of T, uh, there on Bloor Street is the Royal Conservatory. That used to be McMaster. That's where Baptist ministers uh, in Ontario were trained, which is really kind of a neat thought. And it was largely due to this controversy that McMaster kind of picked up and moved to Hamilton to just sort of get away from things. Um, In the ensuing controversy, Shields and a number of churches pulled out of the convention. So that's the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec. Uh, uh, It's the CBOQ now, right? That's what it's called. Uh, So uh, Shields, uh, because of Marshall's liberal teaching, pulled out his big church out of the convention and numerous uh, conservative churches pulled out as well, which uh, then they formed uh, the Union of Regular Baptist Churches of Ontario and Quebec. And you might be thinking, what's if there's a regular Baptist, what's an irregular Baptist? And I'd ask you to speak to Daryl Dash about that. 
<laughs> but uh, a regular Baptist just meant that they were closed communion. That meant that anybody who was a regular Baptist practiced the idea that you had to have been baptized by immersion as a believer before you could come to the table. So that was what distinguished them. Uh, this also saw the formation of my alma mater uh, in 1927, and T.T. Shields, as pastor of Jarvis Street Baptist Church, who started the seminary, was also its first president. <clears throat> Uh, the Dallimore family back in London uh, worshipped at Adelaide Street Baptist Church while Shields was the pastor there. And they supported him when uh, the, the later split happened. So Shields had been in London at Adelaide Street, left, goes to Jarvis Street. There's the big split. And the Dallimore family back in London were supportive of Shields. And, uh, but the problem was Adelaide Street decided that they wanted to stay within the convention. And so in a business meeting, uh, Dalimore's father seconded the motion to secede or to pull out, which was ultimately defeated. And so as a result, the church split and 59 members left and planted a new church in London affiliated with T.T. Shields. So this is all happening when Dalimore is a, sort of a, a relatively young Christian. And it's during this time, as, as all this tumult is going around, that he senses a call to ministry. And so uh, you'll see there in footnote number eight, it says D- Dalimore answer to questions. That's actually, th- this, a lot of this information is actually coming off of an interview that Dr. Haken did with Dr. Dalimore before he died. Uh, so th- this is sort of the primary source material that I'm working with at this point. Somebody's looking in at us, Lemark. Is he going to take my picture and make me, he's going to make me look cool because he's always so cool with his camera. Anyway. Um, In September 1931, Dalimore moved from London to the city of Toronto to study at TBS, of course. The school was only four years old and served the the fledgling union, the the denomination of roughly 65 churches. Uh, With a number of students, Dalimore lived in the rooming house district of Toronto, which was a place marked by the poverty of the Depression, and Dalimore slept in a windowsill. Uh, which was possible because he wasn't a very tall man. Because <laughs> so you think, good grief, how would you sleep in a windowsill? Uh, and in spite of the financial strains, he excelled in his education, earning grades of at least 100 in four classes in his first year. Uh, so I was given privileged access to go into the student grades, uh, though I wasn't allowed to look at grades for my fellow students in my years, but uh, I could look at his, and it was really neat to see. There's Dalimar's grade sheet, and there, bam, 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 he did very well. Um, so yeah, he got, he got a hundred. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, there, there was a couple of them where he got bonuses and he actually did exceed a hundred in one of his classes. Yeah. Good catch. And you'll note there in, in footnote number nine, uh, that he, he got a hundred in church history. So that's, that's, that's relieving. <laughs> um, towering figures among the TBS faculty were W. Gordon Brown, um, if you've ever read D.A. Carson's uh, little book called Exegetical Fallacies, uh, you'll notice that W. Gordon Brown is the person to whom he dedicates that book. Gordon Brown taught D.A. Carson Greek, which is interesting. And, um, and, and uh, so he was at TBS at the time that Dalimore went, as was T.T. Uh, Shields. Uh, I have a horrible personal story about W. Gordon Brown and what I did with his Bible, but you can, I'll tell you guys about it when the recording is not on. Uh, but anyway... Uh, Dalimore struggled under what he thought was the overly stern influence of Shields. Um, and if you know anything about this time and Canadian Baptist life at this time, T.T. T. Shields was a very strong personality. It could often be very divisive. 
Um, and you can, I, you can ask me more about that later if you'd like. And so when Dr. Dalimore was there, he really struggled under the strong personality of Shields. Uh, but his opinion wasn't always entirely negative of him. And in 1986, Dalimore published a short article on Shields in Reformation Today, uh, which is a great magazine. I, if you like reading, you know, Banner of Truth magazine, Reformation Today is another one very similar to that. And uh, Dalimore actually published a short article on Shields in that. That is largely adulatory or, you know, looks highly at Shields, drawing attention to him as a powerful preacher and a dignified pastor. Uh, Gordon Brown, who's the dean of the seminary, uh, was a student at McMaster in the early days of the modernist controversy and was a mechanism uh, in the fundamentalist revolt. Uh, So Brown was one of those students who made public the liberalism of Marshall. So he would sit in Marshall's class, take notes of all the liberal things that he was saying, and then go tell everybody about it. So he was kind of like the, you know, the the agent uh, in the class. And... um, and so was really a key person within that, that split that happened. And uh, when, when TBS formed, uh, then uh, uh, Brown joined Shields as his lieutenant. Sadly, in the 1940s, there was a breakdown in their relationship, culminating in a split and the forming of what was then called Central Baptist Seminary, which is actually where D.A. Carson went uh, to school and where Dr. Haken taught in the 1980s, uh, which was in Toronto. It met just north of St. George Station. Uh, and which is really interesting is that uh, I think um, I'm almost 100% sure that the building that it was once central is now a senior's home and a home for the infirmed where one of the ladies from our church goes and I would go visit her. And then all of a sudden we realized, hey, the place that you're sitting, like maybe there was a Greek class that was taught in here, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, but anyway, so downtown Toronto. And Central, this is like, I'm giving you a whirlwind here. If you want more detail, you'll have to wait till I publish my thesis and uh, there'll be much more in here. But uh, he goes, he go, go, when, when Central was formed, uh, Brown was its first president because there'd been this split between him and Shields later on, uh, which led to another uh, denominational division and the formation of what became my denomination, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in 1953. And in that split, Dalimore had sided with Brown and was a key figure in the formation of our denomination. W.W. Fleischer was the TBS church historian while Dalimore was there, and according to Dalimore, his knowledge of the broad sweeps of history were spotty, but the figures he did know he could bring to life in the classroom. I always kind of thought, oh, you know, it's too bad uh, that, you know, that Fleischer was that way, until I started teaching church history myself and found myself more and more identifying with this statement that Dalimore has about Fleischer. Like, oh my goodness, there's a lot I don't know about church history. Uh, so it's a bit of a crash course. So now I'm much more sympathetic to, to Fleischer than I would have been when I first wrote those words. But anyway, and it was Fleischer who gave Dalimore his love of church history. Uh, he says, Fleischer added a warm spiritual note in seminary life, and under his influence, I gained a greater, a richer love for the great men of ages past. And uh, what more could a historian want to hear from somebody that, that my teaching gave somebody a great love uh, for the great people of, of uh, the past? That's awesome. After graduation in 1935, Dalimore pastored two small churches in Ontario, and very little is known about these first pastorates. Uh, All that remains are a collection of poetry uh, that dates from this time. 
mostly expressing some sense of sorrow or suffering. And it is really sad, actually, when you read some of these poems, uh, just how gut-wrenching some of them are. Uh, and what, what you'll see here as we kind of progress through this is that a large part of Dr. Dalimore's pastoral calling was really a calling of suffering. And, uh, um, and, and you'll see that uh, in due course. Uh, in March 1940, he was called to the Baptist Church in Orangeville. Uh, life then took a positive turn for a number of reasons. Importantly, this was his first substantial ministry. Uh, the earlier ones had been like mission churches or kind of church plants that he was being supported by other pastors. So this is his now first full-time ministry is in Orangeville. And uh, it was um, where a place where he saw the conversion of many young people. And so it was a really fruitful ministry for him there as well. And it was a joyful experience because equally, or maybe just a little bit, almost equally, because I mean, this is, we are talking about people's eternal souls here, but very important nonetheless is that he, the place where he met his, what became his wife, uh, Mae Bredin, whom he married on August 21st, 1942. And Mrs. Dallimore actually just died. Uh, was it a year ago? I think Mrs. Dallimore died. Uh, but I had a, the real privilege of um, getting to meet her and interview her, uh, which was quite a, a great experience a number of years ago for this work. Uh, in March 1943, after three years in Orangeville, uh, the Dalimores decided uh, that they were called to the what was he called the Courtright Wilkesport Circuit, uh, which means there were two separate churches in these two towns, and he pastored both of them. And uh, and he may recalls that this was a happy time in their lives. Now, this the likelihood is that he left Orangeville, even though it was a good church, to go to this because it was closer to Sarnia where his best friend was the pastor, if you guys know, Hal McBain, who was one of the, another key founder of the fellowship. And uh, he is now, where is... Uh, he's in the nursing home, he's almost 100. Yeah, he's almost 100. Is he in Sarnia now? In a nursing home there? I can't recall. Is it? Yeah, but a very, very important uh, founder of the denomination. And they were best friends. And so I think good reason, like the likelihood for him to go out there and to leave a good church was because he wanted to be near his friend. Uh, but this happiness would soon change with Dalimore's next pastorate. Briscoe Street Baptist Church in London, Ontario was known by some as the pastor-killing church. That's, that's the church you want to go to pastor. <clears throat> uh, Dalimore called it a ministerial graveyard as ministers remained but a year. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Ontario Baptists, H.C. Slade had pastored this church as well. He was the guy that followed Shields at Jarvis Street, uh, himself a very powerful preacher, very strong leader, and he could barely last at Briscoe Street. It was a disastrous, a disaster of a church. It's no longer there, as far as I'm aware. Briscoe Street doesn't exist. So not only is it a pastor-killing church, it's a church-killing church. And so Dalimore only, he lasted 13 months and his departure from the church marked a three year break from ministry. And while ba Briscoe Street did not kill Arnold Dalimore, it drove him into depression. And so what he did was he started to do work in renovation, basically flipping houses uh, with another man from his church. So they took out a $2,000 loan, build a house and then sell it, or they'd renovate a house and sell it. And that's basically how he was living. And so the Dalimores, with the first of their three children, lived in eight houses during his first two years of construction, which you could imagine the stress on your family doing that as well. Uh, the financial strain on the family led May to sell her wedding gifts in order to eat. And during this time, her husband disappeared to New York State for three months on doctor's orders. 
And it was very interesting. I asked her, right, you know, we had a face-to-face conversation. I said, where did he go? And she said, I have no idea. She had no idea. Her husband was just, all she knew was doctors told uh, Arnold, you you need to get out of here. You just need to get some space. And so he went to upstate New York. Um, I don't know if he just went and kind of like lived by himself to cool off or if he was actually seeking professional counseling or anything like that. Um, But she said that when he came back, he did seem to be somewhat better uh, in, in terms of his emotional state. In November 1949, a group of 29 people in Essex, Ontario, uh, just outside of my hometown of Windsor, left Essex Baptist to form another church, and they were in need of a pastor. They'd heard about Arnold's gifts and uh, his experience, and so uh, they, they contacted him. And so he would come down from London every weekend to preach this church uh, in, in Essex. And during this time, he discerned a call to return to pastoral ministry and agreed to help them plant a church in the nearby town of Cottam, Ontario. And so in the following February, Cottam Baptist Church was chartered. And on the first day of September, 1950, <clears throat> first Sunday of September, 1950, Cottam Baptist held its first church, uh, church service. And Dalamore remained at Cottam for 23 years. He thought he was only going to go for a couple and ended up being there for 23 uh, remarkable years in, in many respects. And... Um, I, I don't remember if I get into this at this point or not, but I remember asking Mrs. Dalimore, why did he go back? I mean, after he had just such a devastating time and, and just was, you know, to the point where he has to, to leave and, and get some sort of help, uh, what was it that made him go back? And she said he, he was called. He, was, he, he distinctly felt that he was, believed that he was called into ministry, and it's that what brought him back. And that actually becomes a major theme of some of my 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 interpretation of Dalamore was the profound sense that he had been called by God to be a pastor and to be a historian. Uh, and I'm skipping through lots of stuff here. My chapter on his life is much more substantial. Uh, but anyway, in 1970, the Banner of Truth Trust, who I hope we're all familiar with, great publishing house in the UK that publishes good reformed Puritan literature in, uh, at the time was in London, released the first of Dalimore's two-volume biography of Whitfield, uh, a project that he began in the, his early days in Cottam, and it took him nearly 30 years to complete um, you, I hope, are familiar with George Whitfield. Obviously, the people who've read the book are. Uh, but just in case you're not, George Whitfield was the great transatlantic revival preacher in the 18th century. Uh, was kind of a, a key impetus behind the Great Awakening. Uh, so saw you know tens of thousands of people in the UK and in the in New England uh, converted. And so Dalimore had written this biography of him that took him 30 years to complete the two volumes. Uh, yet, as the uh, uh, Dalimore had managed to maintain the work of ministry while he wrote the first volume, yet as the church continued to grow, and I'll get into the writing of Whitfield in a moment, but as the church continued to grow, they were confronted with the need for a fourth building project to start in 1972. So because of his experience, Experience as a renovator and as a cons- doing house construction, what was happening was they that he was the guy who was actually physically in charge of building the church uh, building. Uh, and at first, the first little while, he actually lived in an apartment with his family in the back of it. And so by the time 1972 comes along and he's done his first volume and he wants to do the second one, uh, a fourth building project is necessary, uh, which is a sign of growth, which is a good thing. Uh, but they wanted him to do it. And he knew if I if I 
it's one or the other. It's either Whitfield second volume or I build this building. And so he retired uh, from ministry. And so because he, he was faced with this re, much with this reality that the much needed second volume would not be written if he were to undertake the work of construction. And in a letter to his publisher, Dalmore gave a series of reasons why he felt he must leave the pastorate. He says, I'm getting virtually nothing done on volume two. I have but four chapters written. And unless I get away from the pastorate, there is no possibility that it will ever be done. And so after 23 years in Cottom, Dalmore tendered his resignation in March 1973 to pursue his call to write. And it is, it's it, Banner Truth uh, and Ian Murray uh, were very kind in that they made copies of all of their correspondence uh, over the years with Dalimore and some of the correspondence he had with Martin Lloyd Jones and that, and sent it to me. And it is, it is very interesting to read uh, of the support that Banner gave uh, to Dalimore, especially financial support when he was having some struggles. And, um, and it was something that he really labored over. Yes, Mark. I can't remember if I deal with this. There, I have, there's a. Let me just see here if I I might get to this. I don't want to tell it tell it to you yet. Okay, we'll wait to the end. Ask me that question again. Uh, but yes, uh, there, <laughs> I suspect you might know something of the answer too. Uh, Dr. Dalimore is part of uh, a group of pastors that formed the Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Uh, which Mark, are you still the what's the title? Is it direct coordinator of the Sovereign Grace Fellowship? So, um, their their uh, their group of churches know Dr. Dallimore very well. Uh, so he tenders his resignation March 1973 to pursue his call to write. So in his student days, under the at times faulting direction of the ever loving historian W. W. Fleischer. Uh, Dalimore first came into contact with a man who'd long been dead, George Whitfield, the so-called grand itinerant of the Great Awakening. At TBS, Dalimore had read Albert David Belden's 1930 biography called George Whitfield, The Awakener, and found it, quote, unsatisfactory. He explains that while in seminary, I had no thought of writing on Whitfield, but rather of familiarizing myself thoroughly with his career. So he's, he reads this and he thinks, wow, that was a remarkable man. I really want to get to know him. I want to know this Whitfield. Uh, but didn't at that point feel like he was going to be the guy to write a biography of him. In an article for Reformation Today in 1980, Dalimore explains uh, that his motivation came to write came in part because I had known Richard Ellsworth Day, who was the pastor of Central Baptist Church in London, Ontario, who wrote A Life of Spurgeon and similar works on D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, and David Brainerd. And in view of the financial success these undertakings attained, I determined to produce a life of Whitfield in the hope that it would bring me some monetary reward. This was to be my tent making. And what's remarkable about this is that if uh, God in his sovereign providence hadn't allowed the Dalimores to actually struggle financially. Dalimore would never have had the inclination to write a biography of Whitfield for monetary support. And so God actually used that, their suffering, to bring about immense, immeasurable good for the life of the church broadly. Um, Because otherwise, if if they'd been fine financially, he would never have written the book. Uh, Dalimore was receiving only uh, $50 a week in Cottom, so his thought was to supplement his income, and remembering how little I had found on Whitfield, I determined to write on him. In essence, the financial strain, here I make the point in print, uh, that Dalimore endured in ministry was a factor in the production of one of the most important Christian biographies written in the last hundred years. 
if you ever actually i i i i'm going to let's let's have a project here for the day or for the weekend um i would like i'd be very interested to know what da carson has to say if you were to go and ask him what did you think of dalamore's biography of whitfield just go do it and then afterwards watch the video of dr carson where uh he's speaking at that conference with piper on the pastor theologian and watch D.A. Carson's eyes when he starts talking about Dalimore's biography of Whitfield. It's 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 a profound thing when, especially when you know that you know Don Carson's not somebody who gets emotional easily. I don't think, um, but it's it's very moving. Um, but anyway, it is indeed one of the most important biographies for Christians in the 20th century and the last hundred years. There's no doubt about it. Uh, during the period of the Cottam Church's first construction, Dalimore started collecting books on Whitfield, and by 1955 turned out a 300-page account of his life. Whew. This part always a bit difficult for me to re- recite here, but not happy with what he wrote. The manuscript was destroyed. <laughs> as, a, as a historian, I read those words and think, the 300-page manuscript was destroyed. Oh my goodness, how... Um, but anyway, I take some encouragement from it that here's a guy who writes this awesome book and here he'd written 300 pages that he thought was, you know, worth enough to destroy. So I, I take some comfort in that. Immediately he started over and in two years produced another, but again did nothing with it. Initially, he made contact with publishers in the United States, but feared to submit the, uh, the manuscript, realizing that most previous biographers of Whitfield, I had failed to grasp much of the true significance of his accomplishments and much of the greatness of his person. Also, I decided to do nothing about publishing it until I could first get to England and look up material on Whitfield's friend, Howell Harris in Wales. Uh, Howell Harris is one of the great eccentric figures of the revival. And, uh, and he was a very close friend with Whitfield, and Dalimore just realized, I need to really deal with Howell Harris, uh, because if I want a true life of Whitfield, I need to get a real understanding of their friendship. So in 1959, I went to Britain on the fly now, pay later basis. Would that they had that today, <laughs> that you could just, I'm going to fly to England and I'll pay them later. Uh, but anyway... Yeah, I guess so. Credit card. Okay, give me a break, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so just before his trip to England, Dalimore came into contact with Jeffrey Williams, a very important figure at this time, um, who founded the Evangelical Library in London. So if you go to London, England, you need to go to the Evangelical Library. As well as he had contact with Ian Murray, who is the uh, editorial, founding editorial director of Banner of Truth, and Errol Hulse. Uh, Errol Hulse is um, a long-standing relationship with churches here in Ontario. In fact, Errol is not doing well in terms of his health. Uh, he's been hospitalized. He was actually hospitalized in South Africa. So he does a lot of missions work, and now I think he's back at the hospital in Leeds. So if you think about him, pray for him. Um, but anyway, he came into contact with Williams, Murray, and Hulse. Of ben- Errol was working at Banner Truth at the time. And both institutions were founded under the active influence of Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel. As a self-confessed 18th century man, Lloyd-Jones loved Whitfield, whose journals had been published by Banner of Truth in 1960. So in his contact with Williams, Dalimore found him, quote, desirous of seeing something thorough done of Whitfield. And Murray and Hulse proved of similar mind and willing to publish it. Dalimore's first Sunday in London was spent with Murray at Westminster Chapel. After the morning service, Murray took him to meet to the study to meet Dr. Lloyd-Jones. 
Dalimore was happy to find that Lloyd-Jones, quote, declared it had for years been his chief desire to see something thorough published on Whitfield, and he arranged to have me meet him at the Carlton Club, of which he was a member. So if you know anything of British upper crust society, you would know that the Carlton Club is quite the place to go uh, for anybody who is a conservative or member of the Tory party. And I just love the thought of here's Dalimore, you know, some guy from Cotton, Ontario, sitting in the Carlton Club with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, and I can't help but put a P.G. Woodhouse spin on it, you know, because he always talks about the Drones Club and all that stuff. But anyway, knowing either of those guys, it would not, he, they, neither of them would fit in a P.G. Woodhouse story. But anyway... <laughs> Um, so they met at the club for two hours where the, quote, doctor, as he was known, enthused over Dalimore's work and provided the name of a woman in Aberystwyth, Wales, with whom Dalimore could stay. So Ian Murray drove them to Wales, where Dalimore found various letters and journals of Harris's and did research at the Calvinistic Methodist Archives in the National Library of Wales. Gaining information that he felt would contribute to the improvement of his Whitfield manuscript, uh, he was felt satisfied. Uh, he returned to London, uh, going off to the British Museum uh, for further research, and then from England flew back to North America, where he traveled, uh, as he said, to some of the large libraries on the eastern seaboard, and uh, there where they house manuscripts relevant to Whitfield and his ministry in the colonies. And so armed with all this new material, Dalimore began another rewrite, of his manuscript, now with the plan of producing a two-volume biography. As a novice historian with no formal academic training, so all of his training has been as a pastor at, Jarv- at, uh, at TBS, uh, Dalimore felt unsure of his historiography. He said, I was alone in my task and longed for someone with whom I could discuss the subject and the problems of understanding and presenting it. He did receive encouragement from his publishers, the continual flow of letters between Dalimore and Banner of Truth attest, as well as from Lloyd-Jones. And reading the correspondence between Dalimore and Lloyd-Jones is is really great, too, and very encouraging to read. Uh, An editorial in the Banner of Truth magazine published in March 2006 shows the nature of Lloyd-Jones's encouragement. Correspondence between the two began in February 1960 and continued until November 1980, so just over 20 years of letter writing. And I only have like a sliver of that. I mean, I can't imagine. It would be great to get in contact somehow with the the Lloyd-Jones family and see if they actually have that. Uh, correspondence uh, in more detail. Uh, But so they were writing basically right up until Lloyd-Jones' death in 81. Not only was the doctor's knowledge of Whitfield, Harris, and Revival put to use, uh, but also his medical expertise. As a pastor, Lloyd-Jones also understood the time constraints that kept Dalimore from meeting deadlines. Uh, The first volume was originally to appear in 1964, six years before it was finally released. Uh, I was contributing to an encyclopedia <coughs> over the summer. I, my my entries, I had a year to write 30 entries, which I thank Dr. Haken for suggesting. And um, uh, I had a year to write them. Uh, March was my deadline. March came and went, ah, no big deal. I can get these entries done in no time. Oh my goodness, they took me months to write. And uh, I had the editor breathing down my neck. Uh, so I can only imagine what it must have been like to go for six years <laughs> before your, after your deadline. And uh, the editor that he had was this next man, S.M. Houghton, the great critic of, Loy- of, uh, of Dalimore. Uh, however, Dalimore's support was also felt in the disagreement, uh, or sorry, Lloyd Jones's support was also felt in the disagreement that Dalimore had with his publisher over two problems: writing style and the significance of John Wesley. 
The senior advisor of the Banner of Truth during this time that Dalimore submitted the first volume was S.M. Houghton, a former schoolmaster and history teacher. And if you can, uh, where's page number 40? There, uh, in footnote 40, there's a book uh, called My Life and Books, Reminiscences of S.M. Houghton. It's a lovely little book. If you ever just kind of want to read about the life of of an Englishman, you know, living in North Wales, teaching school, his love for books, uh, that's a great little book to read. Uh, Anyway... But as a schoolmaster and history teacher, he had very high British standards uh, in terms of uh, anything that was to be submitted to the banner. Uh, Hulse, writing for Reformation Today, says virtually every item for publication passed through Houghton's hands, the monthly magazine as well as the books. This included the daunting task of actually correcting the mistakes of the doctor and Arnold Dalimore, men of very strong mind to say the least. And that it was certainly the case. If you read that correspondence, it's actually on one level quite amusing uh, and on another quite horrifying, especially <laughs> as a historian, uh, you know, think, thinking, oh, gosh, I'm glad he's not my editor because that would be hard. Uh, of Houghton's reputation, Murray says some would be some would be authors uh, who never met him personally, but whose cherished manuscripts suffered from one of his critiques, conjectured that he was high handed and authoritarian. That would have been Dr. Dalimore. <laughs> he was he was very upset. Uh, one of those would-be authors, of course, was Dal- Dalimore, who chafed under Houghton's pen. When he received his first draft of Volume 1 back from the publisher, he was aghast at Houghton's editorial censure. He went over my writing, criticizing every word and virtually rejecting everything I had said. And this began a lengthy period of distress as he exchanged letters not only with Banner of Truth, in particular Ian Murray, uh, but with Williams and Lloyd-Jones. Uh, with the latter two, he found sympathy, largely because Houghton was brutalizing their manuscripts too. Uh, so commenting on this in personal correspondence with me, uh, Ian Murray says of Houghton, uh, men here affected Arnold's judgment, uh, wrongly, I believed. Uh, Jeffrey Williams was a good friend of mine, but he did not know S.M. Houghton. So uh, even to this day, Banner of Truth is still very defensive of S.M. Houghton. And I, I personally think that Houghton made their works, Dalimore, Lloyd-Jones, I think he made their work better uh, because he was such a good editor. And and if you know anything about writing, you know that uh, your editor is key uh, in terms of, you know, bringing you along and making you better. And so I, I think that a large part of, of, of their works, we can thank uh, S.M. Houghton for. Um, and so, yeah, he was, he, I get into it more in my dissertation, but Houghton was very concerned that Dalimore was writing in too pastoral of a style and he wanted something more historical and kind of more academic. And so that was a big part of their debate back and forth. And so, uh, uh, another point of difference between Dalimore and Banner of Truth was over John Wesley's role in the Great Awakening. In the manuscript for the second volume of his biography, Dalimore maintained a very low opinion of Wesley. Uh, in his essay, My Years with George Whitfield, Dalimore explains that his greatest difficulty arose from the widely prevailing and yet false concept of John Wesley. Wesley was not favorable, as we know, to Whitfield's Calvinism, and they shared significant personality differences. And Dalimore believed that Wesley had created a party spirit and that many of his followers saw him as virtually flawless. And yet he faced the problem that to ignore the boorish Wesley would impinge on the faithful telling of the life of Whitfield because they were so closely intertwined. He felt it was not only necessary to write about Wesley, but also to portray him as he really was. And so in a letter to Murray, Dalimore expressed his belief that Wesley was so uncharitable to Whitfield that, quote, I am almost ready to say that if George Whitfield had been an Arminian, 
John Wesley would have become a Calvinist, which is an awesome line. <laughs> uh, and I, I get into the, I have a whole section on John Wes- Dalmore's treatment of Wesley in my dissertation, but uh, it's really great. Anyway, the Banner of Truth felt very differently and challenged Dalimore's interpretation of Wesley. According to their editorial supporting Arnold Dalimore that they published uh, in the magazine, they said they were particularly concerned that in his concern to give Whitfield his true place in the evangelical revival, Arnold Dalimore verged on discrediting John Wesley's importance. As with his response to Houghton over writing style in the first volume, Dalimore again pushed back. Uh, Dalimore sought the help of Lloyd-Jones, and the latter uh, more than once was put into a mediating role with the trust's editors. And as Dalimore describes it, uh, Murray also had a hand in settling the issues and reduced our points of difference to a handful, and I went to England again to iron them out. Uh, The completed biography in two volumes is called George Whitfield, The Life and Times of the Great Evangelist of the 18th Century. Although Dalimore's primary purpose was to write a history of Whitfield, taking into account everything that he had found in his 30 years of research, he also wanted to set Whitfield up as a model for Christian living. And in the preface to Volume 2, he says, Volume 2, like its companion Volume 1, goes forth with a mission. As the ministry of Whitfield was used in setting men on fire for God 200 years ago, so may the story of that life be used today. As God then granted a mighty outpouring of his spirit and used the preaching of the gospel to the conversion of untold numbers of mankind, so may the record of that work move men to seek and labor unto a renewal of such blessings in this our equally needy age. Praises came from all quarters as noteworthy theologians and church leaders shared their enthusiasm. J.I. Packer at the time, uh, still at Latimer House, Oxford, though now he's at Regent College in Vancouver, said it was a that Dalimore's book was a biography in the grand old manner and at a high level of achievement. Uh, the steps in Whitfield's theological and spiritual development are analyzed superbly. Munn may feel the inadequacy of occasional statements on peripheral matters, but for Dalimore's treatment of Whitfield himself, there can be nothing but praise. Author and publishers, please hurry up with volume two. Um, in Christianity Today, gr- the great historical theologian Jeffrey Bromley, uh, the guy who basically translated into English, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, uh, so no mean theologian himself, uh, wrote the first installment of a full-scale account of one of the greatest figures in modern evangelicalism. The continuation will be weighted with eager expectation. Alan Gelzo, who is a leading uh, historian, uh, expert of 18th century American religion, this guy is like, he's huge, um, He uh, wrote that Dalimore's was now the standard biography of Whitfield. And although Dalimore's biography was written plainly that ye may believe. So what he's saying there is that Dalimore wrote in such a way to try to convince the readers of, you know, the, 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 whether it's the gospel or Calvinism, but he's saying he's, he's coming at it with a theological agenda in favor of Whitfield here. And so academic historians, and this is a big part of my dissertation, kind of debate the usefulness of that sort of thing. But So Galzo says, yeah, he writes that way, uh, but it represents a major effort to move Whitfield out of the shadow of Wesley, to redeem him from the picture of public buffoon that the enemies of the awakening retailed, and, and, and to establish in painstaking detail Whitfield's transatlantic goings and comings over three decades. And later in, in the, the, the sort of standard academic 
journal for church historians is called Christian History. Uh, Gelzo says that the two volumes are so well written that the length is no burden. Dalimore treats Whitfield as a serious theological thinker rather than a stump preacher and leaves no detail unexamined. The one, the most interesting accolade uh, that I read uh, was by Roger H. Martin, who's the Associate Dean of History at Harvard Divinity School. So this isn't somebody writing within the camp of evangelicalism. He says, uh, he wrote to Dalimore and actually said, how, expressed how much I enjoyed reading it. The field of Whitfield studies is so wide that it helped to have a fairly concise examination of his life. Hopefully your work will encourage others to examine a man who unfairly has been overshadowed by Wesley. Uh, for his first volume, uh, Dalimore was awarded two honorary doctorates, uh, doctors of divinity degrees from uh, the schools associated with the fellowship, the den- denomination I'm part of. Uh, the first came in April 73 from Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary in Vancouver. It's now part of the Acts Consortium, I believe. Uh, and the second came uh, the following May from Central Baptist, which is now Heritage, in Toronto. In April 76, D.A. Carson, uh, who at the time taught at Northwest, uh, wrote to Dr. Dalimore asking if he would become a, quote, scholar in residence in either the autumn of 77 or 78, uh, which he turned down. Uh, Carson adds in his letter, I read the first volume with great pleasure and profit and therefore look forward to the second with considerable anticipation. And in November 1977, uh, Dalimore was uh, contacted by another leading evangelical scholar, this time it was J. Edwin Orr, uh, asking if he'd be interested in attending the Oxford Reading and Research Conference to be held at Regents Park College, Oxford in July 78 and whether he'd become a senior fellow with them. Uh, how much time do I have? I don't know when I'm supposed to end. Uh, you know, oh, I can do 10. 10 to 12 minutes. 10 12 Oh, I can do that. It's no big deal. Uh, this, this part's a little bit more academic, so I, I thought if I didn't have time, I could cut it, but it's okay. Um, but Dalimore's interpretation of Whitfield has not remained the standard amongst historians of evangelicalism. 20 years after Volume 1 was published, Harry S. Stout of Yale University published a study called The Divine Dramatist. Uh, The book, while recognizing Whitfield as a great orator, argued that he was more than that. He was Anglo-America's first modern celebrity, which is true. The first, if you were to ask who is the first Anglo-American celebrity in history, the answer would be George Whitfield. Um, There's no doubt about it. Um, And he also called him the prototypical culture hero. Stout is convinced that Whitfield lived his life almost exclusively for public performance. I would disagree with that. Uh, Whitfield's success as an even evangelist largely had to do with his theatrical ability to hold a crowd. Uh, and there's no doubt Whitfield was theatrical. He was actually, he did drama when he was a student at Pembroke College in Oxford. Um, and there, there was definitely a dynamism that came out of him that, that you could say was dramatic. Um, but uh, I don't think that was the cause of his success. Um, <clears throat> given, quote, this is Stout saying this, given Whitfield's unprecedented success, in marketing religion to the 18th century, we have to wonder what techniques he employed. My search for an answer took me to the most unexpected and ironic source, the 18th century English stage. He says that Whitfield had an early affinity for the stage, and as a result of this influence, he became a, quote, actor-preacher, who produced a new philosophy of preaching that had adopted the assumptions of the actor. Stout sees in Whitfield the birth of revivalism, not just revival, but revivalism, Uh, that was predictable and highly subjective. Instead of being a pious evangelist concerned about the eternal destiny of the lost, Whitfield wanted to be a star, and a particular 
egotistical self-promotion he displayed in his career was very much in the manner of the great actor. Stout sees in Whitfield the proto-modern figure who exploited new media and the marketplace mentality, and he anticipates modern evangelists, particularly those in the electronic church. You just imagine what it would have been like for Dalimore to read those words. <laughs> uh, Stout characterizes Dalimore's two volumes as, quote, filiopietistic. So the idea that um, uh, that he he sees he's, he's, he he has a real admiration and writes overly admiringly of Whitfield is kind of what that term filiopietistic means. Uh, so his his two volumes were filiopietistic, written by a Calvinist admirer of Whitfield. This genre of history writing of being filiopietistic is not properly academic. Uh, but written to encourage laity with the example of the best elements of a subject's character. And so he fills this description, Stout does, saying that the Whitfield emerging in filiopietistic Calvinist and Methodist biographies is a timeless man located on a continuum of faith and revival stretching from Abraham and Moses through Paul and Luther to the present. And Stout contrasts this with his own approach, quote, in exploring Whitfield's career and character, I adopted other less saintly interpretive lenses. Indeed. While he wrote with obvious admiration for Whitfield, it would not be fair to say that Dalimore succumbs to what is called hagiography. Uh, so hagiography just basically means saintly writing. You could put it that way. Hagios meaning saint. Uh, so if you look into the writings of the early church fathers, say, if you looked at Athanasius wrote a biography of St. Anthony the Hermit, who is a desert father, you know, a monk off out in the wilderness, uh, that's a hagiography. Athanasius puts Antony forward as a sort of exemplary monastic Christian that we should all try to strive to live after his kind of holiness. So this is a saintly writing. And so um, filiopietistic histories are often hagiographies. And so the question I'm asking in my dissertation, one of my big questions is, is Dalimore a hagiographer of Whitfield? Uh, so as Jeffrey Nuttall, who is a very important British historian, uh, says in his review of the first volume, his book was written that ye may believe, so he's using the language of Gelzo again, but he does not idolize Whitfield. For instance, in the first volume, uh, Dalimore is quick to point out Whitfield's youthful errors and that Whitfield highly inflated the size estimates of the congregations to which he preached. Dalimore is also honest about Whitfield's relation to slavery. In a chapter entitled Whitfield and the American Negro, he demonstrates Whitfield's egalitarianism when it came to matters of race. Yet there were instances where Whitfield's inconsistency had tragic consequences. And that tragic is Dalimore's word. Um, although uh, it is interesting to note, too, that uh, the most recent biography of Whitfield that's come out uh, is that by Thomas S. Kidd, who's at Baylor University. And he wrote a book called... Um, uh, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, published with Yale. It's probably now the definitive biography of Whitfield. It's very good. And uh, what he discovered, Dr. Kidd discovered, was that not only was Whitfield okay with slavery, but Whitfield illegally introduced slavery into Georgia, which is actually quite horrifying. Uh, but D Dalimore had not discovered this at this point, so he, he can't, we can't charge him with anything because he didn't, he didn't have that, that research available to him. Uh, but and, but it, the point being was that he is very willing on matters of race, uh, slavery, uh, to be critical. Uh, my I have a whole chapter on 
on historical questions in his Whitfield biography, I deal with three major things, the problem of celebrity, the problem of revival, and the problem of slavery. And I, have, I go through in fairly good detail Dalimore's writing. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. That's what that line means there where I say at the bottom of 130, he demonstrates Whitfield's egalitarianism when it comes to matters of race. So Whitfield was 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 willing to preach to anybody. uh, And and he did actually did a a lot in terms of lifting the status of slaves uh, at that time. And the fact that here's this guy, Whitfield, who's a celebrity, who's actually going to go talk to them and preach to them and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, But there is in certain of his statements and the way he describes um, different groups of slaves too that he encounters that are not the best uh, in terms of his language, uh, which is unfortunate. So he's he's we don't want to excuse him, uh, but he's a product of his time, and in a lot of ways he's ahead of his time uh, in terms of of doing things that other people were not doing that we can commend him for. But we have to be honest as well that he he wasn't always um, uh, wasn't as Christian. Maybe he didn't have the best Christian ethic always uh, when it came to those things. Uh, but read Tommy Kidd's biography. He has he, he does that deals with that very well throughout the book. In light of such open criticisms of its subject uh, of of, uh, <clears throat> of of Whitfield, uh, there is justification for putting the biography in a category of filiopietism. If by that term one is referring to Dalimore's open admiration for Whitfield and his unhidden intent to use him as a model for Christian living. So he is, he is very admi- admiring of Whitfield. There's, you can't get past it. And you know that Dalimore is very much you know, in favor of his theology of revival and that sort of thing. But not to the degree that it makes him uncritical of Whitfield at key points. And there are lots of places where Dalimore criticizes rightly, I think. When Dalimore read Divine Dramatist by Stout, he was moved to write a review of it in Reformation and Revival Journal. Though he begins by expressing gratitude to Stout for giving Whitfield due attention and for showing his, quote, unequaled powers as an orator, Dalimore quickly turns critical. In spite of some of the good that Stout pointed out about Whitfield, the chief message of this book is false. It is specious to call Whitfield a dramatist. Stout, quote, makes it appear that Whitfield was a superb actor and that his evangelism was accomplished solely by his dramatic power and not by the Spirit of God. Not only did Dalimore have a problem with Stout's thesis, but there were omissions of important elements in Whitfield's life. And he highlights a number, including Stout's misinterpretation of Whitfield's conversion. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's a big problem with Dalimore's treatment of Whitfield's conversion as well, uh, which is something that I worked through in my dissertation, uh, where he conflates two separate instances into one, which is very interesting, but we could talk about that another time. Um, where was I? Ah, conversion. Uh, Dalimore calls this a painfully garbled account that speaks of his conversion as a humanly contrived experience. He also says that Stout portrays Whitfield as having no interest in theology, but disregards the doctrinal content of the first 10 sermons that he published and of the letters that he wrote during the second passage, uh, his second passage to America. Uh, and that's absolutely true. Uh, Dalimore does not, or sorry, Stout does not deal with Whitfield's theology at all. And uh, I have a friend who wrote, uh, edited two volumes of, of Whitfield's uh, sermons with Crossway. His name's Lee Gatiss. If you can get those, those are great. And Lee has an awesome critique of Stout, uh, his failure to understand Whitfield's theology, that if you know Lee, he's a very typical British wit and just 
rakes him over the coals for it in a very sort of like, whoa, <laughs> kind of way. Um, Dalimore concludes uh, this section of his review saying, pages could be filled with the technical errors that Stout has made. Dalimore's final remarks about Stout's book, though, move from the critical uh, to the discourteous. Uh, I got in a little trouble for this bit by a friend of mine. But anyway, uh, he says that he read Divine Dramatist. As he read Divine Dramatist, his mind kept reverting to 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. The knowledge of Whitfield has long been degraded by Arminian writers, uh, uh, is further dishonored by this book, which portrays him as a chiefly a self-promoting actor. Uh, so I say here, uh, to critique a published work is more than justified. So he's very, Dalimore's very right to critique what Stout has written in his interpretations. And even if, even if the critique is strong, I don't think it's terrible that really what he's effectively doing here is calling Stout's salvation into question uh, because of his interpretation of Whitfield. Uh, so that bit about 1 Corinthians 2.14 may have crossed a line a little bit, um, but... I also can understand Dr. Dalimore's passion for Whitfield, too, at this point. So, um, But whatever one thinks about historiographical debates, Dalimore's work on Whitfield had a tremendous impact on evangelicalism. Uh, the biography's importance to English-speaking evangelicalism is captured, here we go, I say it anyway, uh, by the remarks of D.A. Carson in a discussion of the pastor-scholar. Carson speaks about uh, the different gifts that God gives to his church, and in that discussion cites Dalimore as an example of one uniquely gifted by God. So this is a quote that comes from the book from that conference, so I still want you to go and watch the video of it, just the first couple of minutes. Uh, but here's the quote that he, he gives here. So this is D.A. Carson saying, Few books make me weep, but on occasion that biography did. For all its technical competence and heavy documentation, it made me pray more than once, Oh God, do it again. And Dalimore concludes the second volume with a chapter titled The Measure of a Man. And so to consider the measure of a book, it might easily be said that it is taken by those who have read and been encouraged by it. Uh, Dalimore spoke of the breadth of appeal that Whitfield's ministry had and the continued interest in this story further proves the point. George Whitfield, the book, stands as a monument to the indefatigable labors both of its subject and author. Whitfield made multiple trips across the Atlantic to share the gospel with any who came his way. Dalimore traveled as frequently in order to share that story of Whitfield's gospel. The story continues to be read, lessons learned, and Christians encouraged. Hopefully. Thank you for your patience. Appreciate it. So we just got in on time, hey? Not bad. Do we, is it, what do we do now? <laughs> Yeah, hang out after, want to ask questions, that's by all means, that'd be fun, I'd love it. Well, I'm looking for a publisher now, so I got turned down by Oxford University Press, which I knew would happen, but uh, yeah, so I'm trying to find somebody, but I just, I've been so busy right now that I haven't had, I sent out a couple of uh, proposals out, um, but at this point, nothing huge, so. Yeah, there you go. By all means. Oh yeah, by right, yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, they, they were not happy with him. Uh, they the a deacon in the church at Cotton Baptist came up to Arnold and said, Okay, you've got this out of your out of your blood now. It's out of your system now. So can we just forget about Whitfield? 
and uh and 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 they were very down on him they didn't really support him in his writing of it and so when he retired he was making a pittance at Cottom and the next guy they hired made like something like two or three times more of a salary than Dalimore had been making at Cottom and so yeah they weren't very they weren't uh, he he, give, he gives a whole I've, there's a whole bit of that um where he where he talks about how he was sort of misunderstood by his own people which added to his feeling of loneliness yeah. My my major themes on him are that he felt called to be a pastor, felt called to be a historian, and so what he was doing was following God's call and did so in spite of suffering. And so that suffering is a huge part of his ministry and his life. And uh and God uses that calling and that suffering to give us that. So which is awesome. Ian, in light of that idea, how would churches do you have any thoughts on how churches should yeah i mean that's what i've been that's what i was gonna say i've been struggling with that for like the last 10 years of my life um yeah i think i mean in a very short order i think we should as best we can support people that have particular callings as best we can especially something like that where you know that like you know dalmore's calling is to write church history for the church so it's one thing if he wants to go off be some historian of you know second world war battleships or something like that uh that might you know it's cool but uh but but the fact that dalmore's doing this for the church i think then you know can have some real benefit and i think if we have a kingdom perspective then that we can see how that fits in that but anyway we gotta go thank you